2: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, November 12th. I'm Ashley Norwood sitting in for Karen Brown. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippians are waking up to some frigid temperatures this morning. But how long will the cold last? Plus, the state's top fire official has a warning about improperly heating your home. Then, a new report looks at how race and racism continue to plague the Deep South more than 100 years after the end of Reconstruction. And after a Mississippi Story a Gold Star mother remembers the life and service of her son. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Most Mississippians woke up this morning to temperatures far below what they were the last couple of days. And forecasts show tonight's temps could drop even more, with much of Mississippi reaching well below freezing. MPB's Ezra Wall spoke with meteorologist Anna Wolverton of the National Weather Service in Jackson. Well, the temperatures are going to remain pretty chilly today. They're going to be about 30 degrees
0: colder than they were just yesterday yesterday. Um, high temperatures today are going to be mostly in the 30s with um, southern Mississippi uh, reaching up into the lower 40s. Um, and then going into tonight, temperatures are really going to drop um, and drop pretty quickly too. Um, low temperatures tonight will be in the teens to lower 20s throughout the state.
1: So, what kind of precautions uh, do people need to take if they're if they're uh, either need to be out and about, or how do they need to adjust their normal uh, activities?
0: Sure, um, people just need to layer on the clothing, hats, gloves, scarves, coats, uh, extra pairs of socks, socks, um, and um, you know, with your house, you just want to make sure, especially tonight, maybe. Uh, Leave the faucets dripping, and open up the cupboards underneath your cabinets. Make sure your uh, so that your pipes don't
1: break. So air circulates underneath those cabinets and around those pipes. So w- this uh, this this is the, kind of the first major. I mean, it's been chilly a couple nights, but this is the first major foray into r- real cold that we've had this year. Is this mm-hmm. is this the coming of winter, or is this just kind of a, a foretaste and it's going to warm up a little bit?
0: Oh, this is probably just a foretaste um, for now. Um, Temperatures later this week will warm up. Um, Tomorrow, Wednesday, the the high temperatures will be in the um, upper 40s to lower 50s, uh, and then they're supposed to warm up later this week as well.
1: Okay, so are, are we going to see temperatures through the week? Are we going to see highs in the, the the 50s consistently, or are we going to be back up in the 60s and maybe even approaching 70 or so?
0: Well, by this weekend, we could see temperatures up into the 60s again.
1: All right, Anna Wolverton is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Anna, thank you very much.
2: Sure, no problem. The state's top fire official is Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney, who is also the state fire marshal. While some of us might be tempted to add a little warmth to the house by lighting a fire or using a space heater, Cheney says it's important to use those items properly.
3: Consumers forget to check their heating systems when cold weather arrives, so we're encouraging everyone uh, to check their heating equipment to make sure it's safe to use, especially with the cold weather that's moving in. We're about to have a Week long period of zero degree temperatures, uh, close to zero and 32 degrees. So people need to check their heating system. We've had 52 fire deaths in Mississippi so far this year, and 15 of those deaths uh, were caused by placing flammable material too close to individuals we think that people should check their uh, heating equipment and be very much aware as to what to do to prevent fires within their home.
2: Are there any other tips uh, Mississippians could use to stay safe during this time?
3: Well, one of the biggest tips that we tell people is this. If you use an extension cord, make sure it's underwriter approved. That'll It'll have a little UL label on it. Um, be sure that you don't use these cheap extension cords. Use very good extension cords if you have a heater. Uh, keep clothes dryers and drapes and anything else away from uh, open flames. You don't want anything to burn up in a house. And be very careful uh, if you use a space heater. We say never use space heaters while asleep. That's just, just something that we don't do. And don't leave space heaters on when you're away from home.
2: Okay, Mike Cheney, the insurance commissioner and state fire marshal. Thank you so much, Commissioner Cheney.
3: Thank you, Thank you Ashley.
2: Coming up, a new report looks at how race and racism continue to plague the Deep South more than 100 years after the end of Reconstruction. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: In Legal Terms is pleased to welcome back Desiree Hensley, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Housing Clinic at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Do you have any security deposit or landlord-tenant questions? Call in and ask them today at 10 a.m. while listening on your smart speaker, the MPB Public Media app, or over MPB Think Radio.
2: This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. Mississippians and other Southerners are still deeply divided on issues of race and the perceptions surrounding them. A recent report called Divided by Design shows wide differences in the perceptions of white and black Southerners. Mitch Landrew is the former mayor of New Orleans and is a principal of the report. He talked about it with MPB's Ezra Wall.
4: Um, As early as 1988, when a report was written called Halfway Home and a Long Way to Go, there's always been this interest in trying to make sure that the South gets its due and the South is able to compete. And, of course, throughout that entire time, of course, in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, we understand race is always a very complicated and difficult issue for us to work through. And although it didn't start in the last couple of years, there's been a heightened sense of anxiety. I've always had the notion that, you know, as Southerners, we have a special obligation to kind of figure this out because we were, uh, in many instances, at least in New Orleans, you know, one of the, the anchors for slavery. Um, you still you see the consequences of it, you know, still today. And as, a you know, just an honest matter, we have a difficult time talking to each other about it. And my, think, my thought is that we're better together than apart, that diversity is a strength, not a weakness, and if we can figure out how to get through this issue there's so much that we have in common, you know, the South can then be in a position to actually compete really, really well, not only against the rest of the country, but against the rest of the world. And so I wanted to spend time traveling across the South, which I have done with a team of people for the past uh, 10 months. We've been to uh, 13 different states, 38 different counties. In Mississippi, uh, we were in Hines County, we were in Rankin, we went to Greenville, we were in Sunflower County, and we were in Bolivar. Uh, And we had long conversations, uh, individual conversations, uh, community conversations to try to get a sense of where people were and whether or not we could find common ground so that we could all work together uh, and do better than we're doing now.
1: I was looking at the methodology for this report, and it looks like you – really i mean really you you went above and beyond here to have not only just intervi- individual interviews but a lot of a lot of group conversations focus groups uh uh classes uh, input that that sort of thing talk about how you actually did the research
4: for this normally the way we have conversations about race is we yell at each other either you know, on tv uh or on the playgrounds or in the schools that's generally how we deal and then we say we dealt with it We've never really grappled with the issue of race, uh, what our real history is around it, whether or not people have fair opportunity, whether or not we actually have common ground. And so what we wanted to do was get out of the spotlight. You haven't heard anything about this project really until now, because for the last you know, 10, 11 months, we've been on the ground in these communities quietly talking to people. We will purposefully you know, low-key. We wanted to talk to individuals, and so what we wanted to do was interview people by themselves in a place where they felt free to talk, and so we did over 800 interviews. Uh, Some of them lasted a half hour to 45 minutes to an hour. We recorded them all. Uh, We committed to people that we would keep their names anonymous so they could feel free to tell us what they wanted to say to us. Now, to make sure that we were really hearing what we thought we would hear, we would actually have a couple of meetings in the afternoon of community leaders, but purposely not, you know, the high and the mighty, not the elected officials, just small community groups, and then we would meet with people that were doing great things in the community. We met with black folk and white folk and old old folk and young folk. Um, We met with college-educated, non-college-educated, and then To make sure that we still were hearing the right thing, we did focus groups. Was there anything that you discovered that sort of surprised you? What surprised me was not that people weren't aware of what was going on in Washington, but it didn't turn into a conversation about Washington right away. Like the conversations worn about President Trump or the presidential race or Hillary Clinton. Nobody really talked about that. They only talked about that if they were prodded to talk about it. What most people talked about was what's going on in their daily lives, what kind of challenges they have. What kind of things they like, what makes them afraid, where they think they like being with other people and where they don't. And so that that actually made me happy. The other thing that was universally true was that art and music and sports bring people together, that people really like being in communal spaces. But we also learned a couple other things that are a little bit understandable but yet striking is that we still live very segregated lives, especially in church. Uh, and a lot in our schools, although we're doing a lot better. White folks think that um, African Americans are not working because they don't want to. African Americans' position is we're not working because we don't have opportunity. Now, everybody thought, African Americans and whites a lot, and Hispanic, that the economy that we have is based on who you know and not so much on what you know. In other words, they felt like they weren't really getting a fair shot based on you know, what it is that they could bring to the table, which I thought was really interesting because that cut across racial lines. And, you know, you remember there's a big argument in the South a long time ago about splitting up African-Americans and whites, you know, just for political reasons and that they had a lot more in common. That is absolutely true, that working class folks all are going through the same challenges. And everybody universally wants a better life. They want equal opportunity, and they want their kids to have a better life than they had. And so, even though there's some stuff in there that's really tough, uh, like whites not having a full appreciation for institutional racism, and African Americans being aware of it every day, uh, they still everybody still wants the same thing, and they're willing to work through it.
1: In public, we we hear people uh, sort of out and about having disagreements over whether racism even exists, and that's it true. seems to be divided along racial lines. What does your report uh, find uh, about well that?
4: It's that's, that's an interesting, and by the way, we also did a, an extensive poll. It's an interesting thing. You can get two folks, one African American, one white, and white people in the South generally think about racism as an individual act of malice. They see another person of color, and they, they string out a bunch of epithets, epithets, um, and you know you've heard it a thousand times before. And we've seen tons of you know footage of this uh, in the South a long time ago. Um, African Americans, of course, see that as racism, but their sense of it is that, in fact, it's institutionalized. That whites don't really fully understand that after the Civil War there was this period of Reconstruction, and African Americans ascended to very high places. They were they were governors and senators and congressmen, and doctors and lawyers, and then. You know the hammer came down, and then they did a little bit better, and then all of a sudden you know the hammer came down again. they went through the civil rights movement um i don't I think African Americans don't think that whites understand that when people were trying to find um some money to buy houses with that there were certain banks that would not lend money to african Americans and they wouldn't they wouldn't let them build in certain neighborhoods, and so they weren't able to build generation of wealth that a lot of white families. Poorer white families and middle class white families had access to, and they think, you know, we white people take it for granted. I think that their sense of it is the criminal justice system, um, and there's a lot of data to back this up, and criminal justice reform has taken hold not only in the South but across the country is that that system is upside down. And, for example, African-American men are six times more likely to go to jail and spend jail time for possession of marijuana than white kids are. And so when you see that kind of stuff, there's a difference of what the reality is on the ground. And that's where we hope to try to find common purpose in trying to address the findings that we came up with. And we generally had about 15 of them. We have a website that people can go to uh, and look at. And um, we're going to try to create an environment where people can come together, learn about these things, and then try to put uh, plans in place in respective communities across the South for those that are inviting that want to do better to learn how to get get through this and pass and see if they can out get on the same page.
1: And if people want to see the, the report and its results and uh, learn more about your uh, organization, where can they do that? The website is uh, dividedbydesign.org. Divided by Design is uh, the name of the uh, report. It's Divided by Design, Findings from the American South. And we've been speaking with uh, Mitch Landrieu, who's the former uh, mayor of New Orleans and has been uh, integrally involved in this uh, project. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you very much.
4: Great. Thank you. It was great talking to you.
2: Coming up, a Gold Star mother remembers the life and service of her son. That's after a Mississippi Story Corps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Money Talks provides advice for your finances, and that includes funerals. Our next broadcast will have guest Keith Dean from the Mississippi State Board of Funeral Service to talk about price options for funerals. And our regular experts will be on hand for your personal finance questions. Money Talks after Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: Julie Nicolai, she's called Nikki, met her husband, Henry Castillo, in an unusual way. He lived in Panama, where he was born. She traveled there as a Peace Corps volunteer. In this conversation from the StoryCorps Mobile Tours stop in Mississippi, the two talked about their early relationship and the differences between two cultures.
5: It would have been crazy to think about all that we've been through at that point in time. We were so young. I went to Panama in my early 20s. I was 24 when I went to Panama to serve in the Peace Corps. I was, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in his hometown, Ojo de Agua. And, um, yeah, I was, I was young then, and now, I'm, now I have a lot more wrinkles mm-hmm. and gray hairs.
6: <laughs> Why did you went to, um, to Peace Corps? Why? Mm-hmm.
5: Why did I go to Peace Corps? Well, I did Peace Corps. That's simple, but it's, it's a hard question to answer. Why did I do Peace Corps? I wanted to give something back. We have so much here. And I didn't even realize at the time, I didn't even realize how much we have here. <laughs> Till after I did Peace Corps, and then it seems ridiculous how much we have here. And how people worry over everything. But I still, I still appreciate hot, sh- hot showers. Every time I take a hot shower, I'm so grateful <laughs> for a hot shower. And before I went to Peace Corps, that was like my one number one question I asked the interviewer when she was interviewing me for it. I said, well, man, the hot showers, I just don't know about that, but everything else I could take. But she was right. She told me exactly how it was. She said, in the tropical countries, you appreciate a cold shower. So we started seeing each other after started getting to know him. It wasn't very long. And I just I actually had a night where I just bawled. I was so I cried and I cried. And I was like, I just wasn't going to lose this one. I wasn't going <laughs> 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 to was getting, waiting for him to do something to mess up. He was going to go to the police. He was going to join the Panamanian police. And he was training to do that. And he was supposed to leave in November. We met in October. And he's supposed to do that in November. And so I was like, oh, you know it's over when you go to the police. Like, I wasn't going to have any sort of long-distance yeah, relationship. It, it was kind of awesome. And so he never left.
6: Well, well it, it was because they never called me. Like, the time it's supposed to be, like, November. They called me, like, in March next year.
5: How do you feel about being here in Mississippi? Did I warn you enough about how Mississippi <laughs> was?
6: Yeah, you did, but anyway, I came with you. It has been nice for me. It's different, very different from where I'm from. And still, I think that it hasn't changed me how I am. I keep being, I think, keep being myself. And this is uh, something that I never thought I would be doing someday, like living in our country. I feel good.
5: You don't think it's changed you?
6: No. Not at all. How, How? Well, no. I, I had to adapt to this place, and it has changed me some some ideas.
5: Like what ideas?
6: Well, like there is a whole world outside Panama, and with different point of view, like all the issues that exist in this country.
5: It was amazing to me in Panama how often people would mention the United States and talk about the United States, even just casually. And then to think about how, how many times does someone in the United States reference Panama? <laughs> how many times have you heard someone here in, in the United States say, oh, Panama having a crazy time with that president or, you know, just anything really. It's not even on their radar.
1: To hear more of our conversation from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps Mobile Tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
4: Ever hear a news story about business or the economy and go, man, why do I care? Yeah, not on Marketplace.
0: We've seen stocks go wild. Customer has gotten really impatient.
1: Okay, first of all, we're
4: talking about awards, Kai. I'm Kai Rizdal. It's the business news of the day. For the rest of us, it's next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Tonight at 6 on MVB Think Radio.
2: This is MVB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. Families who have made the ultimate sacrifice were honored during a recent Veterans Day ceremony. MPB's Kobe Vance has more on a Mississippi Gold Star family.
7: The parents of Sergeant Jason Rogers represented the many Gold Star families from around the state who have lost a son or daughter in service to the country. Sergeant Rogers grew up in Brandon and joined the Marine Corps after September 11th. He was serving his fifth tour of duty when he was killed in Afghanistan in 2011, just two days before his 29th birthday. His mother, Jenny Smith, says her son was an avid basketball player and wanted to make a difference.
0: You know, and it helps me to talk about him. It helps all the families to to talk about their memories. It just keeps them alive, keeps their legacy going.
7: At the Veterans Day ceremony, Smith helped lay the wreath honoring veterans. Governor-elect Tate Reeves spoke at the event. He says Mississippi's recent election is an example of service and sacrifice. You know, We had an election on Tuesday in Mississippi that, that was, was able to be done in such a way because there are men and women who have come before us that have served all over the globe uh, defending our right to free elections. And we have men and women from Mississippi that are currently serving all over uh, the globe that gives us that ability. According to military officials, there are currently 12,500 soldiers and airmen serving in the Mississippi National Guard. And over the past year, more than 5,000 have been deployed overseas.